Hello everyone, welcome to Beneath the Waves. I'm your host, Jess Shipman. Beneath the Waves is a weekly podcast that talks about a modern or historical shipwreck, what caused the vessel to go down, and efforts to locate the wreckage. I decided to start this podcast because once upon a time I really enjoyed public speaking, but I no longer have the same platform that I used to do to be able to do that. I've also been fascinated by shipwrecks ever since I was a kid, and I'm excited to talk to them with other people who love them as much as I do. This is the very first episode of Beneath the Wave, so please bear with me as I'm learning how to record, how to edit, things like that. Um, I've tried to record this like three times probably. Last week when I tried to record, I had this horrible double ear infection, cold sinus thing, and I sounded like I was talking with a fishbowl over my head, and that was not not lovely. Um, I also couldn't go like three minutes without coughing up a lung. That was just gross. Nobody wanted to listen to that for 30 minutes. And then whenever I tried to record this earlier this afternoon, I got about halfway through it and realized that I wasn't actually recording. So I'm actually recording this time, and I'm not coughing up a lung, so hopefully this will be pretty decent. Today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the Russian submarine Kursk. Kursk was a nuclear-powered Oscar II-class cruise missile submarine, and she was also known as K-141. But for the duration of this podcast, just to keep things simple, because if you're anything like me, you can't keep numbers straight in your head, we're going to be calling her Kursk. Construction of Kursk began in 1990 under the Soviet Union. She was designed and built because at that time, one of the Soviet Union's biggest fear was the U.S. aircraft carriers because our carriers were able to carry tons of aircraft and tons of troops and tons of weaponry all in one go. And Kursk was designed to be able to take on and sink a whole fleet of aircraft carriers all by herself, which is a pretty impressive feat um, if you have any idea how big an aircraft carrier actually is. These things are massive. So that's what Kursk was designed to do, which, if you think about it, makes her a really terrifying and powerful submarine. So the Soviet Union collapsed during the construction of Kursk, but they were able to continue construction, and she was one of the first vessels to be completed after the collapse of the Soviet Union. She was launched in 1994, Um, and commissioned by the Russian Navy on December 30th as a part of the Northern Fleet. Kursk was assigned to the home port of Vidyayevo. I probably butchered that. I'm sorry to anybody out there who speaks Russian who might be listening to this podcast. I'm fairly positive I butchered that and every other Russian word that I'm going to say for the next 20 minutes or so. Apologies in advance. Kursk um, had this almost legendary mythical status about her when she was launched, not just because of how powerful she was, but because she was also rumored to be, I guess, unsinkable. Guys, don't call ships unsinkable. That should be the very first red flag here to anybody listening to this podcast, aside from the fact that it's called Beneath the Waves, that this ship is going to go down because she was called unsinkable. That's asking for something to happen. Kursk was supposed to be able to withstand a torpedo attack. And how how she was designed to be able to do this is because she had an outer and an inner hull. So there were two, two hulls there so that to kind of help 
you know, if one gets punctured or pierced, there's a secondary backup hull there. And the inner hull had nine watertight compartments so that even if something did happen, they would be able to shut off the other compartments and limp back to home port. Um, the outer hull was also covered in a thin rubber to make it more difficult to detect from the surface. Kursk was launched in 1994, but in the five years between five or six years between 94 and when she sank, she was only deployed a single time, and that was to the Mediterranean Sea to monitor the United States Navy. What kept Kursk from completing more missions was the rising cost of fuel. Because when the Soviet Union politically collapsed, it was also on the brink of economic collapse. And Russia was still working on economically recovering, and the Navy was not immune to the tight budget and the budget cuts. So Kursk really didn't have a whole lot of actual deployment experience under her belt. And many of her crew members were inexperienced because of this. But before we can talk about what sank Kursk, we really have to talk about what kind of weaponry she was carrying, because like I said, she was designed to take down a whole fleet of aircraft carriers. So each Oscar II submarine could carry 24 granite missiles, and these are pretty cool. Each missile is 33 feet long and weighs 15,400 pounds and has a top speed of Mach 1.6, which is cool. I mean, that's fast. And they have a range of 300 plus miles, which I don't know how that stacks up with modern or more modern type missiles but that's just mind-blowing to me not knowing a whole lot about missiles in general weaponry and the granite missiles were able to carry two different types of warheads now the conventional warhead that the granite missiles could carry were 1,653 pound warheads and they would damage a carrier they they could really do something to it but they were also able to carry a 500 kiloton warhead, which would vaporize a carrier with a single hit. And she could carry 24 of these things fully loaded. She was also armed with a Type 65 torpedo, which is what's going to come up later in conversation. And the Type 65 torpedoes were able to carry a 450 kilogram high explosive warhead. In the year 2000, Kursk joined the Summer X exercise. She was armed with dummy granite missiles, dummy Type 65 missiles, and also live Type 65 missiles. Uh, it was the first large-scale naval exercise that Russia had put together in over a decade. And it, this was taking place just kind of so that we get an idea of where, where we are here, because Russia is absolutely massive and they have a fair amount of coastline. This was taking place in waters kind of near Finland, so it, in that general region up there in the northwestern area of Russian water. In the Summer X exercise, there was the battleship um, Peter the Great, which is the English name for it, because I'm not even going to try to butcher any more Russian pronunciation in the rest of this podcast. It's already going to happen, but I'm going to try to keep it to a minimum for everyone's sanity. Uh, so the, pa- the, the battleship Peter the Great was there, also with a grand total of four attack submarines and other smaller ships for a grand total of 30 ships in this exercise. And Kursk had a full load of combat weapons. And this is interesting because she was one of the few ships in the fleet authorized to do so at all times. So at any given point, she had live 
combat weapons, and she haven't had a full load of combat weapons during this exercise. And she was to make a simulated attack on the battleship Peter the Great, because Peter the Great in this exercise was going to play the part of a, an aircraft carrier so that Kursk could practice an attack on a carrier, but using the battleship Peter the Great instead. So let's get into what happened here, because this is where everything kind of starts to go wrong. So at 11.29 in the morning, Kursk's crew began to start the attack, and the simulated attack, and load a practice Type 65 torpedo. There was no warhead on this, but it did weigh 9,000 pounds, and it was propelled by kerosene. There was no simulated attack made. The crew and the captain of the Peter the Great battleship was waiting for it, and nothing ever happened. And so they tried to radio to Kursk, but the submarine was unreachable. But the captain of the Peter the Great battleship was kind of used to the Porter radio communications because, like I had said earlier, the Russian Navy didn't have the biggest budget at this point. And so oftentimes there would be radio communication failure, and it was something that all of the captains were used to, and he was not worried that he couldn't reach Kursk. So at 11.29 and 34 seconds, a seismic event was, was recorded. A seismic event occurred. The crew of the battleship, this was before they had tried to radio and go like, hey, what happened? But at 11.29 and 34 seconds, the crew of the Peter the Great battleship, why do I keep saying battleship? The crew of the Peter the Great reported feeling something that felt like an explosion from under their ship. And they, uh, they picked up a hydroacoustic signal that was basically indicative of an explosion. So they took that information up to the captain. The captain realized that no simulated attack had happened, tried to reach Kursk, and couldn't get a hold of them. But they weren't too terribly concerned. So at this point, another submarine in the exercise, because I mentioned that there were four of them, another submarine also detected an explosion, but their crew was told it was just part of the exercise and nothing to be concerned about. Two minutes and 14 seconds later, a second blast occurred, which measured a 4.2 on the Richter scale, which was equal to five tons of TNT going off. And so at that point, the captain of Peter the Great sent the findings up to fleet headquarters, but they were ignored. The, uh, the seismic data once, you know, looking back on this, the seismic data for the second explosion occurred at the same depth as the seabed. So in the time from the first explosion to the second one that was much larger, Kursk had already sank. And that second explosion that was a 4.2 on the Richter scale was picked up as far away as Alaska. It was a massive explosion. If you remember, I said that this was taking place kind of in waters up near Finland. Alaska's pretty much on the other side of the world at this point, and it, this explosion was picked up in Alaska. After the explosions, at 1.30 in the afternoon, or 13.30 if we're going by military time, the captain of the Peter the Great dispatched a helicopter to look for Kursk from the surface, and they didn't find anything, which wasn't too terribly concerning, because Kursk did have that rubber coating that I had mentioned earlier that made her more difficult to detect from surface. 
but they couldn't find anything from from the surface with the helicopter. And this was reported to the fleet commander, Admiral Popov, who was aboard the Peter the Great. Now, on Kursk, Lieutenant Captain Dmitry Kolesnikov was the commander of the turbine room in compartment 9. He wrote a message on a piece of paper that was later found on him. And this was, uh, and, and I'm quoting here from his, his message. 1315. All personnel from compartments 6, 7, and 8 have moved to the 9th. There are 23 of us. We have made this decision as a result of the accident. None of us can get out. Kursk was already on the seabed in, in dire trouble here at 1315, which was 15 minutes before the helicopter was even dispatched for a very first attempt to even look for Kursk. What had happened here and why they were able to be in compartments 6, 7, and 8 that were not flooded was that the shockwave from the explosions that had happened in the torpedo room was so powerful that it completely destroyed the watertight bulkheads from the front from the torpedo room up until the nuclear reactor because Kursk was a nuclear submarine. And that reactor was so heavily armored that it was able to either absorb or stop somehow the shockwave. So you had the first compartments, the reactor was safe, and then six, seven, and eight, and nine were all dry because they were behind the reactor. The reactor was kind of in the middle of Kursk there. The rescue buoy was not deployed, and it was equipped with a rescue buoy so that if something were to happen like this, they could deploy the rescue buoy and they would know approximately where the submarine was. But the, it wasn't deployed. And it was later discovered that the buoy had been welded shut so that it wouldn't accidentally deploy during the deployment to the Mediterranean give up their location. Because that was their deployment, they were watching the U.S. Navy, and they obviously didn't want us to know that a Russian submarine was sitting right underneath them, watching what they were doing, so they had welded shut. Kursk ha did have two escape hatches, and one of the hatches survived the blast. We are assuming that an attempt to go to the surface through the hatch was discussed, but there were several problems here. Uh, they could get the bends. Nitrogen comes into your bloodstream rather than oxygen, which is lethal. And if nobody picks them up, because they are that far north, they would die of hypothermia. And you also have to take into consideration that there's a very good chance that some of the men in compartment 9 were very, very badly injured as a result of the blast. So trying to go to the surface was just not, not an option. Compartment 9 was also beginning to flood at this point. So after the explosions were detected, an emergency was not declared for another 12 hours. And at that point in the home port of Kursk, rumors were kind of starting to swirl that something had happened, but they were really hard to believe because of her unsinkable status. I mean, she was mythical. She was this beautiful, large submarine that was unsinkable and could take down a whole fleet of aircraft carriers. It was nearly impossible to believe that anything could have actually happened. It was kind of said that she was just having a malfunction, is what... Russian officials were telling the families. Popov, who I mentioned earlier, he was the uh, big guy in charge there. 
he had claimed that communication had been established with the crew, everything was fine and dandy, and water and oxygen were being supplied, which we know at this point is just absolutely not even remotely close to what has happened. Not even, not even close. That's what the initial reports were to try to keep everyone, you know, good old Soviet uh, <laughs> communication skills there. And then the Russian media initially had started reporting that Kursk collided with another vessel. Then later, a little bit later, senior military officials reported that the entire crew perished within minutes of the accident, which goes against the claim that Popov had made that they had established contact, and goes against what actually happened because we know that, you know, an hour and a half, two hours after Kursk sank, that note was written that you know, at 1315, they were still alive and on the seabed. So families were told that they had established contact with the crew, and then they were told that Kurs collided with another vessel, and then they were told that the U.S. Navy had launched an attack on Kursk. And so there was just all sorts of misinformation and confusion as to what was actually happening being spread there. Putin had recently been elected president of Russia, and he was on vacation when he was notified of the emergency, but he had opted not to return to Moscow. And later, later after the fact, he had said that he had the same level of communication no matter where he was, which is why he decided not to return to Moscow, because there wasn't anything much more he could do no matter where he was. But he did say, looking back, that he should have returned to Moscow and been more proactive and looking like he was doing something. Later, there was a press conference that was being held that I actually remember seeing footage from this as a kid, and I was like, I think, five when Kursk sank. But there was a press conference, and a woman was getting borderline hysterical, just demanding to know what's happened to her family members. And a medic actually comes up and injects her with a sedative as she's demanding to know what's going on. So even though <laughs> it's not Soviet Russia anymore, but they're still clearly kind of dealing with things a bit old school here, which is nothing to laugh about. That was mostly just nervous, uncomfortable laughter. I don't want anyone to think that I'm taking this lightly in any way, shape, or form. Back down in Kursk, while all of this press hullabaloo was going on on the surface back in Russia, the men in Compartment 9 knew, or they were told, that the Northern Fleet had a submarine that had rescue capabilities. They had all of the reasons that I previously mentioned to wait for a rescue, because not only could they get the bends, it'd be freezing cold up there, many of them were probably injured, they were told that help would be coming. They had no reason to attempt to go to the surface by themselves. Unfortunately, the Russian support vessels and the submarine rescue vessels were also the victims of the severe budget cuts, and the submersible that they had was not capable of being launched in the rough waters that was going on at the time. And 30 hours after Kursk sank, the submersible was finally able to dive to attempt rescue. But the batteries were extraordinarily outdated. They only had a very short amount of working time on the seafloor to be able to try to rescue anybody. And they were forced to return and recharge the batteries. Allegedly, they were really close to being able to lock onto that hask and make a rescue attempt. But... It's really not known how close that they were. The, uh, the British 
and American navies at this point knew that something had gone wrong with a Russian submarine, and so they were standing by to help with rescue attempts. But, since we're not too far past the Cold War here, the Russian admirals really couldn't bring themselves to ask for help. The British Royal Navy had two submersibles that they were able to bring to the rescue, and because there was less of a political political tension there, I suppose, the British Royal Navy was went, you know, like, oh, well, we can help because we're not America, you know, the obvious Russian-American tension from Cold War. And they had two submersibles that they were able to bring to the table for the rescue. And these submersibles they had were only able to approach from any angle rather than just from straight above, like the Russian rescue vessel, which, because it was rough waters, that'd be much more helpful. And the offshore oil industry also had uh, what's called saturation divers who can go to that deep ocean pressure and return to the surface up to 1,000 feet. I don't think I mentioned this before, but Kursk was in 300 and something feet of water. The oil industry, I think specifically the Norwegian offshore industry, because they were right there close, had divers who could go down to 1,000 feet. They, they'd be able to go down and try to make contact with any or all survivors. Finally, the duty officer in charge of submarines for the British Royal Navy just went without orders and without authorization and began to come to the aid for survivors of Kursk. Eventually, Russia finally calls for help. But when the Norwegian and the British rescue vessels arrive, they are told that they cannot go anywhere near Kursk. They had to stay miles back. So they're kind of sitting there going, well, why did you call for our help if we're just going to have to stay several miles out? But rather than going back home, they, they wait. And they wait for Russia to tell them, okay, yes, you can come down, you can help us. So finally, after nine days, Norwegian and British rescue divers are allowed to go down to Kursk. They tapped on the side of the hall, hoping to hear any sort of a return tap, and nothing. Much, much later, Russian officials released that they believed that the crew was able to survive for up to three days, which is extraordinarily tragic because they could have been rescued. The, the British and American navies almost instantly went, yeah, we can help, we're, we're standing by. So, what caused Kursk? sink. The, they had the two explosions that I mentioned. The explosions were caused by the torpedoes, and the kerosene in the torpedoes need a big boost of energy to be able to travel at the required speeds. So there's a huge amount of oxygen that needs to get the combustion going for this energy boost. And how they get the supply of oxygen for this initial combustion is through hydrogen peroxide. The, uh, the kind of peroxide they have is called high-test peroxide. This is very, very concentrated and very, very explosive. Most navies, this is, this is the year 2000, remember? Most navies have long since abandoned hydrogen peroxide missiles and torpedoes because of how vulnerable they were. The English Navy abandoned them in the 1950s. They're extraordinarily outdated at this point. Copper and brass are amongst materials that cause this um, high-test peroxide to disassociate and produce heat very rapidly and very quickly whenever they come into contact with one another. Realistically, what probably happened here is there was some sort of a leak, and the minute that it hit any, the, any copper or any brass, it just exploded. The, uh, the HDP missiles, high-test peroxide missiles and torpedoes, require a ton of maintenance, 
and the Russian Navy just did not have the budget to perform the required upkeep on them. Later records, after, you know, investigation and internal investigations, records indicated that the weapon that was loaded for the simulated attack on Peter the Great had not received the maintenance that was required. They were all older torpedoes that had been in storage for a very long time. And after all of this, there was even talk and rumors that one or several of the missiles and torpedoes had actually been accidentally dropped while being loaded onto Kursk. For several years after the tragedy, the Russian Navy held on to the claim that the sinking of Kursk was caused by a U.S. or NATO submarine, and there were four U.S slash NATO subs in the area monitoring the exercise. A a top-secret report was released in August of 2002. The government published a four-page summary that officially revealed, and I'm quoting here, stunning breaches of discipline, shoddy, obsolete, poorly maintained equipment, and negligence, incompetence, and mismanagement of Kursk. The report said that the rescue operation was unjustly delayed. So that is the tragedy of the sinking of Kursk. And there's a lot more information out there that you could really get into, um, a lot more political information. There's several great documentaries on the subject if you want to learn more or listen to more about it. I want to thank everyone for tuning in and listening to my very first episode. I also want to apologize if there's any weird background noise. I'm recording with some pretty basic equipment here, and I also have a fan going in the background. Uh, I live in the South, and recording this podcast is not worth dying of heat stroke over. I really hope that you like what I had to share with you today. Next week, I'll have a completely new story to share. If you could leave me a five-star review after listening, that'd be absolutely awesome. If you know of a shipwreck that you'd like me to talk about, email me at beneaththewavespodcast at gmail.com or reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is beneath the waves, but the three, or beneath the waves, and the is spelled with the letter three at the end rather than an E because the proper way to spell it had already been taken. I'll put all of my social media in the episode notes if you'd like to follow me. I also want to give a huge shout out to my Twitter podcasting group chat. They've all been very helpful with showing me the ropes and talking about podcasting and bouncing ideas off of. Uh, Lastly, I also want to extend a very heartfelt thank you to the Drop Anchor podcast crew. They're absolutely hilarious and have been very helpful and motivating during the process of starting this podcast. Go give them a listen while you're waiting for the next episode of Beneath the Waves. And once again, thank you, and I will talk to you next week. Bye.